0: Welcome to What's Hot Harlem, America with G. Keith Alexander, the crossroads where culture, lifestyle, and community meet, all hosted by the legendary New York radio TV personality and proud Harlem American, G. Keith Alexander.
1: Welcome to What's Hot Harlem, America with G. Keith Alexander. Wherever you are, I appreciate you for joining our neighborhood as we hang out together in Harlem, America. Now today in the What's Hot Spotlight is Neil deGrasse Tyson and Mr. Tyson is the fifth head of the world-renowned Hayden Planetarium in New York City and the first occupant of his Frederick P. Rose directorship. He's also a research associate of the Department of Astrophysics at the American Museum of Natural History. He's a recipient of 21 honorary doctorates and the NASA Distinguished Public Service Medal, the highest award given by NASA to a non-government citizen. And, believe it or not, People Magazine once voted him the sexiest astrophysicist alive. So, it is my distinct honor and pleasure to say that Neil deGrasse Tyson is What's Hot. (laughs) <laughs> well thank you for that <laughs> warm and overlong
2: introduction but I, I need to comment on a couple of things there so first sure. that people magazine distinction mm-hmm. okay first of all that was 40 pounds ago <laughs> <First of> all, <laughs> back in 2000 mm-hmm. and i don't know how competitive that category was just in all <laughs> fairness that other categories like sexiest action star or sexiest news anchor all right <laughs> sexiest <laughs> model that six is astrophysicist, I don't know who I beat out for that. Yeah, I,
1: well, you that know, I, I was wondering about that when I read that. I said, well, who are, uh, who are the people in competition? You know.
2: <laughs> and another thing, however impressive that 21 honorary doctorates sounds, mm-hmm. you should think of the other side of that is, it means I sat through 21 graduations. <laughs> 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 no. <laughs> I, I like a little sympathy on this one. Please. Oh, OK. All right. Hey, in, in doing so, though, did you give the same same speech? Oh, no, no. It, the speeches are in the moment. They're they're of a time and of a place and who the audience is and what what the primary majors are in in that school. Is it an engineering school, an art school? Oh, no, there's not. I don't give the same speech. Well, who you think I am? <laughs> if, if it's the same speech, I just hand the speech, let somebody else read it. And I stay home. I watch a movie i wouldn't have to show up no no if, if i give a public comment or speech mm-hmm. um it's it's in the moment otherwise like i said why bother
1: well see i i i wouldn't know because uh, i've never been asked to uh you know to to give a speech uh in order to get a a a, a doctorate so but well, you I'm, give a
2: speech every every time you're on the radio. You're giving a speech, so you don't need to stand in front of a few thousand people when you can do that all the time.
1: Well, I guess you, yes, I, I guess you're correct on that. Uh, so you know, it's such an honor to have you here because you're you're one of the the most brilliant people that 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 we see on television. That represents us. I mean, you you represent us, and and so therefore, the world has got to know that that there's some brilliant black people out here because of you. Well, I mean,
2: you could have invited me 10 years ago or 20 years ago, and, and now, you wait till now to invite me. <laughs> 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 I mean, it's like, I was around, okay. <laughs> but well, better late than never,
1: fine. Okay. That's right, I'm so glad that you you had the time to come to Harlem America, we really appreciate that. Uh-huh. Uh, so, you know, I, I'd, like to, uh, I'd like for us to take the Wayback Machine, uh, and go back and 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 you tell us what it was like growing up as little Neil deGrasse Tyson. Sure. Well, let me go a little even further
2: back than that and say my parents uh, were born in Harlem, oh, really? up in I guess today is would call Spanish Harlem, but mm-hmm. um, north of the park of mm-hmm. Central Park, and so the root the tap roots are deep, and they both uh, ended up professionally doing things in the service of people and of society uh my father um studied sociology and then he worked under mayor Lindsay during the civil oh, really? rights movement and as a commissioner in in, in uh, of the career and manpower development agency so here's a little known fact mm-hmm. of all the rioting that went on in inner cities of the 1960s while New York City had a few uh, dust-ups nothing compared with what we saw in Washington and Watts and in Chicago and, and you know, what is a riot, if not sort of the last act of desperation when you really have no other hope. And so my father was involved in programs and other actions that the city took to ensure that the next generation had some hope for jobs to, to, to become participants in the American dream. And that was a diffusing force Mm -hmm. in the unrest that would occur in New York relative to other places. But no one writes news articles on riots that don't happen, right? (laughs) They go to where the riots do happen. And my mother, who was a housewife, um, they they started a family right after she finished high school, Mm -hmm. but then would go back to school, empty nest, and study gerontology. So my parents... We're totally into helping other people. And here's their kid, the astrophysicist. I knew I wanted to be an astrophysicist since I was 11, being interested in the night sky since I was nine after a first visit to the Hayden Planetarium, my local planetarium in New York City, the Hayden Planetarium, where I now serve as director. So I go way back, but but I wanted to begin this answer by saying that even though my head was in the stars, my feet were anchored on Earth. <laughs> so uh, I, w- I w- I'd- I'd never floated away. I was always in the moment whenever the moment needed to be in. And so I just want to lead off with that. But uh, I grew up in the Bronx and mm. my earliest memories were Castle Hill Avenue, the Castle Hill housing projects, which are middle income housing projects. And then when my father's income went above that, we moved to Riverdale which is a swanky part of the Bronx and all my formative years were there in public school and uh, and that's uh, and I would haul my telescope up to the roof of the apartment building where I lived only when I was an adult did I say hey wait a minute The name of the apartment building I lived in was called Skyview. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, a word is just a word until you parse it and figure out what it's actually saying to you. I just grew up in the Skyview apartments in the Bronx and I would put the telescope on the night sky. And that's how I fed my hunger, my curiosity for science and for the universe itself. I would ultimately go to the Bronx High School of Science and mm -hmm. then I would leave New York uh, to go to college
1: did your uh playmates think you were kind of weird uh, looking up at the stars well, so all the time? That's
2: an important question so i uh, was athletic i think more because people expected it of you if you're a young black male they expect you to run fast and play basketball so yeah i ran fast and i played basketball and the measure there of how good you are is if there's going to be a five on five that's going to play in the full court in the playground Mm -hmm. and they start picking you in order there are two people who start and they Mm -hmm. start picking In what number are you picked to play (laughs) (laughs) are are you like the third one after the two captains or are you the 10th i'd be picked like fifth really okay sometimes i'm in the middle of my basketball talents so but but that was enough to not be ridiculed or or feel a, a force of rejection mm-hmm. for my geeky ways. And my geekiness was mostly just at home and when I, with my own telescope or with other geeky kids. I didn't go to the playground and be geeky in the basketball court. That's suicide. <laughs> okay. So who, who would do that? No, you don't do that. Okay.
1: Right, right, right. So, all right. So then <clears throat> uh, leaving your geekiness, or I, I guess you took it with you to college. Uh, oh, definitely yeah so you went to uh you went to harvard
2: yeah graduated from the bronx high school of science then went to harvard and majored in physics Mm -hmm. and then i got my phd in astrophysics from columbia university returning to new york city for that
1: uh okay so now excuse me Oh, by the way
2: allow me to say Mm -hmm. columbia in harlem heights oh wait a minute they changed it to morningside heights oh okay (laughs)
1: <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> I, and 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 I was told the reason why they did that is because they wanted to uh, get these professors from all around the 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 world to come to Columbia, and and the professors didn't want they didn't want them to think that they were coming to Harlem. Of course. And so,
2: but there's this lone remaining plaque of the Battle of Harlem Heights that has George Washington portrayed in it, and it's on the side of one of the walls of Columbia. Uh, university on, on the Broadway side, and it says to commemorating the Battle of Harlem Heights. And of course, it, it's there's a big uh, um, cliff face mm-hmm. between Harlem Heights, where Columbia is, and Harlem, which is below. And it makes complete sense to be called Harlem Heights. But anyhow, uh, so <laughs> I didn't mean to dig on Columbia, but that's where <laughs> I got my PhD from Columbia. Before I, I then afterwards I went to Princeton to postdoc, wow. and then I became full time at the American Museum of Natural History when we were going to rebuild the Hayden Planetarium into what is today the Rose Center for Earth and Space containing the Hayden Planetarium.
1: I see. All right, so now, pardon me, you, uh, aside from being an astrophysicist, it it appears to to us that you've become like a real media darling. I mean, a real, you know, like, uh, have you on a show. It's like, back in the old days when um you didn't see many black people on television so whenever there was a black person on television you'd get the whole fan hey come here come here come here so-and-so's on tv you know well <clears throat> whenever you come on television folks want to want to be there to hear what you have to say about science and and space and and then you throw your you're your, your like a comedian also you throw your comedy in there Tell us, how did you become such a media darling?
2: Well, first of all, I think the universe is hilarious. <laughs> so, <laughs> just, let's just start there, all right? And uh, I'm a big fan of comedic arts. Uh, I, I, I host a podcast where my co-host is always a professional stand-up comedian. So I value what perspectives comedians bring to the world. They make you think, good ones make you think or rethink what you always just accepted as true or as a a proper social moray and they'll they'll stir the pot a little bit and if they're good comedians they'll do it for the better and society benefits from this so but my visibility comes not from any real desire to be visible I just as soon go back to the lab or, or or go out the back door when nobody's looking find me in the Bahamas on the beach with a pina colada. <laughs> okay. So the, what's behind a big part of this is I would say I didn't take a poll, but I would say maybe one out of six of my colleagues are on the spectrum. And when you're on the spectrum, you know, you don't always make eye contact you. The good thing about it is you can be a great scientist and not have to have, not be completely tricked out in social graces, right? It doesn't matter. A lot of it is you and your computer and the lab and the telescope. So um, if the evening nudes needs a comment on a Hubble photo or now a James Webb Space Telescope photo where Pluto gets demoted or a black hole is discovered or or there's a solar eclipse, we could put others of my colleagues in front of the camera. But if, as best as I know, I'm not on the spectrum, so I can look at the camera and smile and raise my eyebrows and emote. (laughs) So, so I ended up getting called upon more frequently than my colleagues by the press when they wanted a return visit to talk about one thing or another. Then I realized if I'm getting called upon multiple times, let me see if I can perfect that. Mm -hmm. So I'd look at the old footage and I'd say, oh, I could have said that better. Or there's another way I could have Uh, value this information relative to that. And another way to accomplish this is in the day, you know, before I was heavily recognized, I'd be on an airplane. So, what do you do? And what do you do? They find out I'm an astrophysicist. Outcome the 20 questions. All right. Are there (laughs) aliens? Will we is there black hole? Will eat us? Is there God? Right. And as I'm giving my explanations, I'm monitoring uh are they raising their eyebrows? Are they looking attentive, or are they distracted by something else? Am I keeping their attention, or am I not? And I would log, I would passively log. When I use this word, they lightened up. When I use this word, they didn't. When I utter this phrase, they faced me. When I uttered this other phrase, they glanced away. And so I have a, I have a repository of words and phrases and ideas and facts that I know in advance stand a better chance of exciting you when I tell you about this content. And the Twitterverse gives me instant knowledge of this. When, because I was going back before social media in those examples, but now in the Twitterverse, I'll post something that I think is funny And if nobody's laughing in the comment stream, it's not funny. Make an adjustment. Okay. Or if I say something I think is crystal clear and people say, what do you mean by that? It's not crystal clear. What I think it is, is not what is, what is, is what is. Right. How's that for a sentence? Okay.
1: Cheese and crackers. You, you okay. See, you see, ladies and gentlemen, I, I'm talking about brilliance. You, you see, uh, who would have thought of this but uh, uh, Neil? So, no, uh, no, I'm just
2: saying. So, I, 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 I co- compile all of this and I invoke it every time. There, there it is. And I'll give another quick example. One of my first times on Jon Stewart's on The Daily Show, mm-hmm. I, I, he's smart and he's a comedian and he dances circles around you. And I've seen politicians try to give their stump speech and he just jumps in and out and they're like a deer in the headlights. And I say, that is not gonna happen to me. And I, so I studied him and I looked at his interviews and I timed with a stopwatch. How many seconds does he give you to speak before he jumps in and interrupts you comedically? Because if I'm trying to give a whole thought and he jumps in that breaks the thought and then I have to go back to the thought and that's clumsy. And then, and so I, timed it. And I said, okay, there's an average of six to nine seconds before he comedically interrupts. So I took all my information and I parceled it into five to 10, ten second increments. And then I would start delivering them. Then he jumps in. I have a complete thought. We laugh. The next complete thought comes. And you know what happens at the end of that? People uh-huh. came up to me and said, Neil, you have such good chemistry with John Stewart, and <laughs> I say you have no freaking idea <laughs> what homework I did for you to think I have good chemistry
1: with John Stewart. Incredible, Neil. Uh, we're going to take a short break right here, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we are with the uh, brilliant astrophysicist, Mr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, and I'm G Keith Alexander with What's Hot Harlem America, and. Uh, don't go away we'll be right back with more of uh, this uh, brilliant man to talk about uh, the James Hubble uh, or I should say the James Webb uh, telescope and the Hubble telescope and much much more don't go away. Harlem America. It's about Harlem. Harlem is my town. Carver Bank where 80% of every dollar is reinvested in the community.
2: business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press
0: Blog. All access, all the time. You're listening to What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander. To reach our show live today, call in to one 866 472 That's 1-866-472-5788. Also, you can send an email to gkeithalexander at HarlemAmerica.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Yes, thank you so very, very much there, Kevver. Uh, we're with uh, Mr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. And, uh, Neil, you were telling us uh, about... <laughs> Well you're telling us so much. Uh, but what I want to ask you about though, the James Webb telescope revealed all of these wonderful heavenly if you make if I may call them that visions. Uh, uh, what were your thoughts when when you saw them for the first time? It exceeded my
2: expectations. I think you you want to go in a little bit tempered so that you know you don't want to get let down and there it was performing exactly as it according to its design specs and uh, far exceeding our expectations. It did in that first released photo that got leaked by the white house, mm-hmm. that photo with all those galaxies in the image, mm-hmm. um, that transcended. One of the most heavily cited and most, uh, important pictures ever taken by the Hubble telescope, which was what we call it, the Hubble deep field. This one, oh my gosh. I mean it's it's we are really in another generation of access to the universe uh, provided by this telescope and it's got its own story it was launched christmas morning last year oh. 2021 and it sits at a special location special orbital location mm-hmm. a million miles away from earth in the opposite direction of the sun and it orbits with earth around the sun at that location yeah. and that's a, a specially chosen location so that with its shields it has certain thermal shields so that sunlight never touches the telescope itself Mm. enabling the telescope to sink down into a very cold temperature where it has to operate to observe the universe in infrared and because if the telescope started rising in temperature the telescope would end up detecting itself Really? Rather than the objects in the universe, so that everything about this telescope was brilliantly conceived, and you'll see a lot of teles- uh, You'll see a lot of scientists talking about the results, but I want to give a shout out to the engineers that made this possible, and they're they're the unsung heroes of this uh, of all of this.
1: Well, no, it was uh, what about uh, twenty thousand people involved in, in in making this happen, and and at least because them-
2: there's it's NASA, but also there's there's academics around the world who are part of the science teams that, that, uh, that put forth the science objectives for the telescope. There's Northrop Grumman, a whole corporate partner that actually built the thing. There's, uh, so, yeah, you add it up. It's a lot of people.
1: Well, okay, so now uh, explain to me, you know, and talk to me like I'm no, a six-year-old. I like the way you say that. Explain <laughs> to me. It's like, <laughs> like you're angry about something. No. Can you explain <laughs> to me? What? I, okay, I, I'm, fr- I'm, fr- I'm frustrated. I, 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 I want you to talk to me like I'm a six-year-old. How right. is it that we're able to, through this telescope, go all the way back to the beginning of time, to almost where, they, where God said, let there be light? Uh, how, how is it that we're able to see that?
2: Okay, so astrophysicists, as well as geologists, among all the sciences, have kind of a unique view on the world. If you're a geologist, you can look down through a cutaway of the earth, and you'll see sedimentary layers, for example. And as you go farther down in the sediment, you're looking farther back in time. So you could do this and go back sort of 65 million years, bada-bing, dinosaur fossils start to show up. Well, how come they're not there later than 65 million years? Oh my gosh, they went extinct. So geologists have direct access to a timeline of events in the earth. In the same vein, so do we as astrophysicists, because it takes light time to travel from distant places. If we were sitting across the desk from each other, I would see you not as you are, but as you once were three billionths of a second ago. <laughs> so we don't concern ourselves with such short timeframes because you live much longer than that, all right? But now suppose you were on the moon. I'd see you as you once were one and a half seconds ago. On the sun, eight minutes ago. The nearest star to the sun, four years ago. The farther away something is, the farther back in time you are seeing it. The nearest big galaxy to the Milky Way, two million years ago, we see light from that galaxy before humans even were humans. And now you go out into the deep universe with this specially tuned telescope and it will see galaxies being born because those were dim and they have a certain wavelength of light and this telescope is tuned Precisely to what they would look like today, and so the universe is itself a time machine, if you want to think about it that way
1: I asked you to talk to me like I was a six year old and I think you were talking to me like I was a nine year old okay well how about okay,
2: universe time machine how about
1: that? <laughs> You, far
2: away, old, <laughs> nearby, new. How's that? Is that better for you? Are we okay? Yeah. Okay.
1: <laughs> now, okay. So, now, all right. Now, uh, so from what we can see, those beautiful pictures, would there be anything behind those stars? Does the galaxy so conti- now, Does the universe continue on? All
2: right. So, if you look out to the depth of the universe, the one that had the galaxies in it, uh, we're seeing the point before which nothing was formed. In fact there's a period of the early universe called the dark ages where we had the matter in place but it didn't yet make stars so it's called the dark you can google it the dark age I mean dark ages universe not dark ages human civilization you look mm-hmm. it up there's a gap so we could so this telescope will enable us empower us to see the formation of the first generation of stars and galaxies now because the telescope is tuned for the infrared It turns out infrared light has significant penetrating powers into gas clouds that are nearby. So you could take the telescope, tune it on a gas cloud nearby. By the way, what a star is made of? Gas. Where do they come from? Gas clouds. So find gas clouds in our own galaxy, put the James Webb telescope on them, and it can peer deep inside in ways that visible light cannot you peer deep inside you can see stars being born and one of the images in that initial five uh image release from the james webb telescope is called the Carina nebula this is a stellar nursery that is being that's birthing not only stars but planets in orbit around them so we have the fascinating fact dual fact that the most powerful telescope in the world well in space, most powerful telescope we have, (laughs) is ideal for seeing the birth of the universe and the birth of stars nearby itself.
1: Wow, okay, so now the universe is infinite, I would imagine. But we don't know, but we have a horizon. It may be
2: infinite, but you can only see out to the horizon. And just like if you're a ship at sea, and you look out, gee, Uh, my, my ocean ends right there, you know, (laughs) 10 miles away. Is that the edge of the earth? No, the ocean keeps going. Well, I don't, don't, how do I know that? Well, sail in that direction and see what happens. Okay. So would you say that the ocean is infinite? Well, you don't know that until you've mapped all the coastlines, but if you otherwise had no clue, then is it infinite or is it just really far? we have a horizon in the universe and life from that horizon has been traveling for 13 billion years, 14 billion years. What happened then the universe was born.
1: If the universe is bigger than that, we don't know for sure. Could there be, uh, is there only one universe, or could there be a multitude of universes?
2: Recent, see, you're asking questions above that of a third grader. I just want you to know that, right? <laughs> Don't <laughs> pretend like you you're eight years old here. You <laughs> you a wise man. So right now, we have uh, our understanding of all that would give us a big bang in the early universe, also generates other universes. It's a very natural consequence of the physics and the math. And so on our frontier now, we are contemplating what it means and what it would be like to have a multiverse of which our universe is just one. And by the way, science fiction picks on on this stuff very quickly. So Rick and Morty goes through the multiverse. (laughs) We have this, the animated cartoon. And uh, of course, Doctor Strange in the Marvel Universe. He's got a multiverse going on with him so i'm proud that in my field we supply the vocabulary and concepts for frontier sci-fi storytelling
1: are we in a galaxy right now
2: so we are on earth orbiting a star called the sun and the sun is one of several hundred billion other stars well let me honor carl sagan a little better than that we are one of several hundred Billion. <laughs> <laughs> billion stars are orbiting the center of the Milky Way galaxy that's our galaxy and our galaxy is one of perhaps a hundred billion galaxies in the observable universe
1: cheese and crackers
2: right so if you're giving your address to the post office you would say whoever still does that you would give your name your street your city your state and your country right? And each of those is a bigger scale. You could continue that. And you say, I'm Fred Smith on 125th Street uh, in New York, and here's my zip code, and I'm in the USA, in the northern hemisphere of Earth, of the solar system, of the Sagittarius arm of the Milky Way galaxy, of the the Milky Way, of the uh, Virgo supercluster, (laughs) <laughs> and last line there would be universe that's if your mail is coming from some central point in the universe they got to know how to find you i got you
1: well uh one day that might be uh you know the, what we'll have to do, send mail to Mars or send mail to wherever. But <laughs> uh, right right now, there, there are five galaxies that are interacting with, with each other, and they're called the, the uh, what, the Stepan Quintet or Stephan Quintet? Oh, it's one it. of the images
2: from the James Webb telescope that was released. Correct. By the way, galaxies that are near each other in space will feel each other's gravity and collide. This happens all the time. We have many examples of it of all stages of collision, Stefan's Quintet, it's five galaxies, four of which are in the act of colliding. And when two galaxies collide, it's a train wreck. Stars are cast hither and yon, they become severely distorted. And by the way, we are on a collision course with the Andromeda galaxy, and we're gonna collide in five or six billion years. That's gonna be a train wreck too. So the Stefans quintet is nice they're tightly uh, connected so that you can get it in an easy frame from the telescope
1: and And uh, exoplanets what are they?
2: Oh well, so we have planets orbiting our sun. but it's, suppose you discover a planet orbiting another sun, another star. those are exoplanets. And right now the catalog of exoplanets uh, the first one was discovered like nineteen ninety five so twenty seven years ago right now we're up in. We're passing 5,000 in the catalog of exoplanets, some of which are Earth like.
1: I was just getting ready to ask you is it possible that uh, it could have, you know, water on them? And uh... yeah, and some are Earth like orbiting what we call the Goldilocks
2: zone, which is the region not too close to the sun where you might evaporate the water, not too far away, it might freeze because on Earth life thrives in liquid water. So using our own life bias, which is understandable, I guess, but at least we're self-aware of it. You're going to look for an Earth-like planet around a sun-like star orbiting at the Goldilocks zone distance. And if you're going to pick the first planet you're going to look for for life, it would be
1: that. I've often heard you, or I believe I've heard you say that uh, we're all stardust or something like that. What is stardust? Are, are, Are we a part of the universe to that magnitude. You sound upset that
2: you're being analogized to dust. <laughs> okay, so let me, well, well, uh, I, let I, me I elevate remember. the concept, okay? okay? all right. There's dust that collected under your bed at, <laughs> that you don't sweep out often enough. That is not what I'm talking about, okay? So, <laughs> so in the universe, there's, there's gas and dust clouds from which stars are born. And the dust is larger molecules that are so large that they can actually stick to other molecules and, and, uh, and block light that might otherwise pass unimpeded through the gas cloud. And so dust is very common in the universe and is manufactured in stars. The base ingredients of dust are manufactured there. We look at the ingredients in life on earth with the same ingredients, the same ingredients that are manufactured in stars. And when you, do the math and you do the astrophysics you learn that we owe our origins to stars that have manufactured those elements and exploded and it scattered that enrichment into the galaxy out of which the next generations of stars and planets were formed so you could stand out under the the night sky and look up and say we're here and the universe is there and i feel small or you could say I'm here, the universe is there, but in fact, though I'm alive in the universe, the universe is alive within me. (laughs) I'm not just figuratively made of the stars. I am literally stardust. And that offers a sense of participation in a great unfolding of cosmic events that should embolden your ego rather than <laughs> destroy it. <laughs> and by the way, we yes. like to think of our ego as if you're special, uh, we've somehow, I don't know how we began this, that you're special if you're different from everybody else, but maybe we're special because we're the same as everyone else. We're made of the same molecules, the same atoms. We have this, the DNA is damn near identical. Okay, We are a species, among other species, of life on Earth. We are biologically connected to all life on Earth. We're chemically connected to Earth itself, and we're atomically connected to the universe. This is a gift to civilization from modern astrophysics that borders on the spiritual for how it has the power to move you just sitting out under the night sky and reflecting upon it. Wow.
1: We're going to take a short break. I hope you guys are taking notes on this. Uh, (laughs) We're going to test (laughs) at the end, yeah. That's right. And uh, I just want to remind you, please, to uh, download Harlem America onto your cell phone. uh, And you can also uh, download Harlem America on your smart TV. So if you've got Roku or Amazon or Android or uh, Apple TV, go for the app. And I I put my app right next to Netflix. So uh, uh, we'll be back with Mr. Neil deGrasse Tyson in just a few short shakes. The home of Glasso Smart Water is Harlem America. Harlem America, the home of Coca-Cola Zero.
0: Have you ever thought about hosting your own radio podcast to establish fame, fortune, and followers for your small business? People listen to them, they subscribe to them, and they love them. As a small black business owner, doesn't that sound like something that you'd like to be a part of? Well, you can when you hire the radio podcast pros at Harlem America Digital Network. Imagine, you'll have a team of creative and technical professionals at your disposal and a one-hour weekly radio podcast to spread the word about your business. Making your business successful with its own media is not for the faint at heart, but it can happen with a Harlem America radio podcast talk show. Get a free consultation by emailing Alexander at harlemamerica.com or call D. Daniels at 480-553-553. 741 today.
1: You're listening to Harlem America. I
2: love
0: it a lot.
1: For entertainment. Check it out. Check it out. Empowerment and health and wellness. Harlem America.
0: You're listening to What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander. To reach our show live today, call in to one 472 5788 That's one 472 5788 Also, you can send an email to G. Keith Alexander at harlemamerica.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Thank you so very much. Uh, before we uh, ask Neil about uh, his podcast called Start a Talk, uh, and we talk about his 15 books that he's authored. I want to ask you one, one question. Are there species of people out there pointing a telescope at us?
2: I'm not authorized to answer that further.
1: That class- <laughs> no, just- <laughs> <laughs> That's
2: classified. <laughs> uh, there could be. Uh, and, and by the way, you say species of people. There could be some life form vastly more intelligent than we are that do not find us as interesting as we do, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so yeah, uh, there's nothing stopping that for sure. All right. So but I was- keep in mind th- the farther away they are, they would not see us as we are right now. They would see us as we once were, depending on how far away they are. So, if there's a galaxy 65 million light years away, which there is, and they develop a superpower telescope to look at what's happening on Earth in our galaxy. They will see Earth as it was 65 million years ago because that light is only just now reaching them. Wow. They won't see humans. They'll see some early mammal ancestor of ours, some tree shrew looking rodent uh, <laughs> running underfoot, and they're going to see the dinosaurs go extinct.
1: Really? Yeah. Incredible. Wow. All right. Well, let's talk about your podcast because when podcasts were first coming into existence, uh, years and years, and years ago, y- you were one of the first to uh, jump on this uh, podcast trend with a show called "What? Star Talk?"
2: Okay. Yeah, well, we got a grant from the National Science Foundation because we, I realized that there are people who already know they like science and so they tune into science programming. But how about the people that don't know they like science or don't know yet that they like science or better yet, the people who are sure they don't like science. How am I going to bring science to them? And so I I teamed up with some uh, people who have uh, deep, have deep thoughts in this regard. And we ended up writing a grant, a proposal to the National Science Foundation to create a show that would actually feature celebrities. Just people you've heard of or people who did something that you heard of. And then we find the way this science connects to what they, to their livelihood and then bring in a comedian to just bring some, a force of levity to the conversation, and you'd end up coming for the celebrity, but you'd end up staying for the science. <laughs> and this, I, I hate to call it a recipe, because it almost cheapens it, but this combination of science, humor, and pop culture is the, are the three DNA strands that make Star Talk. And it's been going for 13 years, o- originally on terrestrial radio, then, then, then satellite radio, and then, primarily today as a podcast. And we've even had a spinoff called StarTalk Sports Edition because there's no shortage of science touching (laughs) sports today. Not only the physics of the sport itself, but Mm. decisions that coaches make. They are data mining geniuses today for how they're going to play their athletes, how they're going to play against their opponents, uh, what methods, tools, and tactics they're going to use. All sports, football, golf, baseball basketball we'll occasionally get a nba star or nfl star to come in we we even address the the concussion issues that are affecting uh football players in their later years and we bring in a health expert on that who specializes in in in, in the um, neurophysiology of the human brain so i'd like to think we're making an, an important contribution to the public Appreciation for science in all the ways it manifests in civilization.
1: And your current co host, uh, comedian, uh,
2: oh, my co host, comedian is Chuck Nice, hilarious guy. Plus, he's smart. All, I think all comedians are smart, but he's smart in a sciencey way, so that when he says something humorous, it advances the flow of the show's content. And so, so yeah. This is how this is how how we roll. Is that like, and I'm I'm proud of what we've created, and we've got a lot of good people, who are, you know, producers and and uh, people on our social media frontier. Uh, Star Talk has a has a TikTok presence. Okay, so here I am TikTokking with people one third my age, <laughs> <laughs> getting the science message out there. So because in modern times, the unlike like when you and I were growing up. It was like three media outlets, right? Right, and that was it. Now there's 50, so you have to pick
1: and choose, you including want Harlem a... America Digital Network.
2: Okay, there you go. I like the plug for it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all. And by the way, that and Star Talk has. We're working on our third book for Star Talk. First one is Star Talk the Book, uh, published mm-hmm. by National Geographic, uh, books, which is highly illustrated. And what else would you expect? Right. National Geographic having touched it. And another one called Cosmic Quandaries. And a third one won't be out for another year called uh, Cosmic Conundrums. And they're all based on themes and topics that have been explored in the show.
1: Well, you, you've got uh, probably about 15 books that you've authored uh, to date. And uh, you've got another one coming out called Starry Messenger, Cosmic Perspective on Civilization. Uh, tell us a little bit about that.
2: That's coming out in like minutes. I mean, it's coming well in September, September 2022. Thanks for asking. Uh, that one, I could not have written it 10 years ago even. I wasn't wise enough. This, this book is the summation of all of the wisdom I have gleaned in my life upon observing through the lens of a cosmic perspective and science literacy which is built into that all of the places and ways people are arguing with each other <laughs> digging the heels in over their strongly held opinions
1: examples please Claire, example, uh, give us some examples oh
2: oh oh an example okay I got one for you um, oh, well, the, let me give you a sampling of the chapter titles mm-hmm. I want uh, exploration and discovery uh, truth and beauty life mm-hmm. and death mm-hmm. risk and reward uh, law and order, mm-hmm. gender and identity, mm-hmm. race and color. Yeah, I went there. Okay. <laughs> and I have another one, uh, meat eaters and vegetarians. These are all places that are highly contested landscapes on which we find civilization. Uh, civilization can't thrive if people are fighting at this level. So I say, oh, you think this? And that's what your opinion is based on. Have you thought of it this way? And often, there are points of view that are not just between the two warring factions. I don't need you to compromise. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about a point of view not neither of you even looking there. And if you looked there, you'd say, oh my gosh, I don't even have an argument anymore. Because there's a higher point of view, a more informed point of view, a more scientifically literate point of view that you might not have considered, and I'll give I give just a, just a quick example. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not telling you what opinion to have. I just want you to have a more informed opinion. Are you a vegetarian? This is from the vegetarian and meat eaters chapter. Are you a vegetarian who's who 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 just simply doesn't like killing animals? If that's your reason, as opposed to carbon footprint or anything, you just don't want to kill animals. Okay, and you might even have a a, a a humane mouse trap in your basement where you trap the mouse and release it later, and you feel good. Because you didn't want to snap the neck of a mouse that wandered into your basement, okay? Do you realize putting the mouse back out in the wild, they're going to be somebody's lunch <laughs> before a year and a half is out. On average, they don't live longer than that because they're eaten by an, a, a a a a fox or a, a an owl or a hawk or any bird bigger than a bread box is going to eat a mouse as a tasty snack. You have doomed your mouse to death by doing that. Whereas if you kept it in your basement, it would live for years in the warmth of your basement. (laughs) Invite the other mice in. But you're not doing that, are you? Because really, you're not all in on the I don't want to kill animals thing. Oh, and by the way, what's your house made of? It's made out of wood. Okay. The floorboards, the two by four, the planks. The, 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 the siding, that's wood from 50 trees, each weighing 20 tons. <laughs> trees that were home to birds and, and, and woodland creatures and insects. You cut them all down to make your house. You know, probably you didn't make your house, but you gladly bought the house made of wood to do so. And the tree gives 15 times the mass of the mouse in breathable oxygen every single day. Who do you think nature cares more about? The tree or your chubby one ounce, one ounce mouse? And when you, and, well, the tree doesn't have a beating heart, maybe the tree doesn't need a heart. Have you thought about that? The giant sequoias in the Pacific Northwest live a thousand years, Whoa. a thousand years. Who does nature care more about? And when you cut a tree, does it not bleed? When you cloak a tree, does it not suffocate? When you cut a tree from its roots, do the leaves not go limp? Oh, but save the mouse. Okay. Fine. (laughs) 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 Keep saving. I don't want to, I'm just, go ahead. If you feel good about yourself, do it. But in a cosmic perspective, there's more going on than you just saving your one ounce mouse. The entire book is filled with examples such as this. May I be That was just one chapter.
1: May I be bold enough to ask you about the race and color chapter?
2: Oh, you want to go there? Okay. Just
1: because so you got <laughs> Harlem in your in your
2: show's name, you're going to go there. Okay. All right. Let's do it. Oh, you you have a specific question? We want well, another well, example. No, I I'd like for another example. Oh, no, okay. 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 How about um, the destruction of statues? Not the destruction, but the removal of statues that were already kind of in progress, but hit a fever pace after the George Floyd murder. Mm-hmm. Statues that represent, especially in the South, mm-hmm. Civil War uh, generals and other uh, um, Civil War combatants of high rank. They'd be on a horse, in a square, in uniform, wielding a sword. Okay. People saying, don't take them down. They're history. They represent history. And so I would say a couple of things. Um, no, We should never forget history, of course. History matters. But Um, is this statue so that we remember history or is it to celebrate this person in the middle of this square, right? Is is this a history exhibit or is it a hero exhibit? It's a (laughs) hero exhibit. And who is this person? Oh, this person fought against the United States in defense of the South during the civil war Well, they're defending the South, you know, the bucolic, uh, you know, South. Well, what was going on in the South? Oh, 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 one third of the human beings living in the South were African enslaved people. So everything you want to defend about the the South was enabled by one third of your population being treated as though they're not human as slave labor that's what you're defending okay and that's the hero that you want here i have no lost emotions for the removal of those statues put the history in a book so we have the full context okay do you want to surround that exhibit with a million slaves and uh, let's do that (laughs) then it's a history show okay (laughs) but no one's going to do that of course now here's an interesting case Mm -hmm. I know we're running short on time here yeah we got about a minute Mm -hmm. okay in the front of my museum the american museum of natural history we had Mm -hmm. teddy roosevelt that statue got removed why he's on a horse flanked by a native american and a black african standing next to him interesting fact here they are standing there they're muscled they're not couched over they're not appraising him they're not they're not doing anything that you would normally see black people or Native Americans doing at the time that statue was built and designed, the 1930s and 40s. Look at the caricatures of black people and Native Americans at the time. Oh my gosh, none of them were good. They were designed to make white people feel superior that they're not Indian or Negro, okay? And so here was a statue ennobling these two characters. By the way, they're each carrying rifles. Right? That no one wrote about that. And Teddy Roosevelt, yes, he's on the horse. He has a sidearm. The Native American blood they have full rifles standing next to him. That statue was a forward-thinking progressive creation at the time. There were people back then that said, How dare you sully the image of our favorite president with these two lesser human beings? It was so the protests were the opposite of what you're saying here. Okay. So For me, I'm actually glad they removed the statue, but for one reason only. My litmus test is, would anyone today design a statue like that? And the answer is, of course, no. You're not Mm going to put a person on a horse and two other people standing. You just wouldn't. So the sensibilities have shifted, and I think that's a good thing. Well, but we're... As the sensibilities have shifted, take a look around at what you are doing that you think is progressive, because that statue was progressive in the 1940s. Take a look around at what you're doing today in the 2020s and ask yourself in 100 years, what am I going to look like to them?
1: Well, that's interesting. And we've got to leave it right there because uh, you have uh, really given us a show to remember. And I really, really appreciate this. I want to remind you that uh, you can go to to Amazon, and you can check out uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson's merchandise. He's got some really creative uh, t-shirts and things that you can find there. And uh, we want to thank you for coming and being a guest on our show. We we must have you back because you've got so much to say. And uh, I want to thank you so very, very much, Neil, for- Well, and uh, thank you.
2: And if anyone's interested in this book that I've been giving snippets of, uh, you can pre-order it. Publishers like knowing how how many to print right up off the bat. And just look for Starry Messenger and Tyson. It'll go right there. Uh uh Amazon has it listed as do others. But thank you for those for those mentions.
1: You're quite welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so very much. We'll see you next Friday at 1 p.m. here at What's Hot Harlem America with G Keith Alexander. And don't forget to download our apps on your smartphone and on your smart TV. We thank you. Have a great day and a better one tomorrow. And don't judge your brother or sister too harshly as you walked a mile in his or her shoes. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening to What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander. We'll be back next Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. That's 1 p.m. in New York on the Voice America Variety Channel and the Harlem America Digital Network. Thank you for listening.